This is the sound of worlds beyond number. Beautiful stars hang in the nighttime sky, celebrating the near full moon that shines light over a vast and endless rippling sea of treetops, whose leaves are cast in indigo by the pale moonlight. Wind moves over them, feeling of brisk, chill air, the coming of winter. And in all of this silver and violet, there is one cradled point of warm and orange light emanating from the cross-hatched and little dust-covered windows of a humble country tavern. Gotta start at a tavern. I mean, are we playing D&D? Are we playing D&D? Or you know. Quite heavily. You gotta, you gotta understand the forms so you can subvert them. There you, you know? go. Exactly. There you, go. you get it. Uh, the tavern rests on the bend of a dirt road with comfortable wheel ruts alongside it. The road hugs the edge of a not too steep ridge that goes down into a series of orchards and vineyards, small farmhouses. Now sleepy and quiet as the nighttime has come, with beautiful little lined and stone walled fields of vines and peppers and grapes and tomatoes all hanging there uh, with harvest right around the corner. The noise from the tavern uh, is one of merry conversation as the travelers who just reached this remote village need to stop here for the night because the next tavern would be too far off on their journeys, uh, along with plenty of the villagers and farmers here who have come to share a drink and a meal among friends in this public house. Off in this far-flung pastoral place, there is no need to differentiate oneself from competition of other taverns so the tavern bears no name or sign it's the only tavern in town but for those that need specify it is often called the tavern by the well a beautiful stone well uh, rests off sort of partially in the road near the stable and is covered by the boughs of a very bold magnolia tree that is now in full blossom and its white and pink petals sway in the wind over the well and looking in through the window we see merry villagers some travelers uh, a bar with a warm lacquered wooden railing and a figure behind the bar pretty effortlessly hoisting barrels up onto the back wall. Lou, could you describe your... Yes! <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm happy to. Oh my god. Uh, 
Do you want name or do you just want description? Uh, give me the name as well, although it's quite possible that you're the only person in the tavern who knows it. Oh, look at that. Uh. Well, uh, the person I'm describing is my character, Ursulon Toma. Uh, oh. <laughs> I am a, a large, probably about six foot five, uh, large, dark-skinned man, muscular, but not in like a, like, I work out kind of way, just like a, you know, in a very attractive sort of way. Black stubble, kind of a bit unkempt, but in that kind of, uh, you know, rugged, kind of attractive way. Um, But then uh, bright red hair uh, braided uh, back behind his head uh, very cleanly. And then rich hazel eyes. Uh, Ursulon, most of the people here at the tavern by the well... Uh, refer you simply as Toma. And probably a few have heard of that village, even though you're many miles from it now. Mm-hmm. But those that don't, it's common enough as a given name that it certainly brooks less attention than Ursulon. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you are lifting barrels up, you look out at the chamber here. And this is sort of the work that you have been hired to do here at the tavern. Um, There's plenty of physical labor here to be done uh, that you are more than equipped to be able to do. You look out into the common room with the sort of rich, pungent smell of pipe smoke that hangs and diffuses the light in this space, the candles that are lit and hanging from chandeliers, and there's a big roaring fire in the fireplace. So it's a very smoke-filled room, although it's a sweet wood smoke mixed with tobacco. And you see that there is an old man wearing brown traveler's clothes. He's got some sort of loose breeches, his boots sort of tied up with lace and cloth around his shins, and he has a vest with many trinkets and ornaments hanging from it, probably a traveling peddler of some kind, selling sort of wares and charms and things like that. He's got a couple days stubble, a little bit of sallow skin, and he is being fed by some of the villagers here, you can see, because he's a storyteller. And that... in this part of the world, that's close enough to some kind of priest or holy man that the folk of the village are sort of plying him um, with some belongings. Um, a uh, heel of bread and a little bit of soup is put in front of him by uh, the innkeeper's daughter, who you know here, her name is Rosalind. Um, and she puts it in front of him and he says, Oh, take you kindly, love, I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, no children, you gotta... And sops up soup with the bread and eats it. You see this guy is hungry. Um, <laughs> and he looks at them um, and he says, Oh, have I seen the sea? Well, I've seen the wide oceans and I've seen the far-off seas of Gauthmai and Rove. I've seen the inner seas beyond the Eli, the islands around the great city of Carrow, if you can believe that. And the kids look... A person coming from even four villages away... <sighs> Huge, huge deal. Uh, And he looks out, and one of the little children pipes up and says, You've seen the whole world? And he goes, The whole world? Well, I've seen all of this world, certainly. And the kids all kind of grow hushed. (gasps) (laughs) You certainly didn't think that this was the only world there was, did you? No, no. This is not the only world. (laughs) It's not even the first. 
There was a world before this one, children. And he leans in. I think at this point also Ursulan starts putting the barrels away, just slower and quieter uh. Uh, as he, uh, you know, kind of turns part of his attention to uh, whatever this man is about to say. Um, you see uh, one little precocious kid says, not the first world. What do you mean? And in a sort of accusatory, disbelieving tone. <laughs> and he says, well, you'll believe it or not, but thems that's learn and know that the first world there was was the world of spirits. Great and powerful some were. The sun and moon themselves and their king and queen. The great storms, beings high above and deep below in that first world. It was them that lived there that made our world, you know. Children sort of shudder and look at the storyteller as he then says, But you need not worry, children. For sure, there's them spirits great and mighty as the dawn. But there's spirits small and humble as a blade of grass, with stations no greater than a humble acorn or a seed of the field. The world of spirits is great. All around us, above, beneath, beyond, below. You see that the old man smiles at this point. Uh, Ursula, give me a perception check. You got it. First roll, first roll, first roll. Thirteen? Yeah. Um, you see that uh, later than usual, um, three three guys come into the tavern. Um, and you see they have a couple horses outside and begin to speak to Rosalind, who nods and goes out to sort of you know, stable their horses. Uh, but they come in and go sit off at a table by the side. Mm. Looking at the three men, I think you notice that they're wearing villagers' clothes, but you don't recognize them. So they, like from the farming communities or the just regulars, dressed like them, but not of of them. You, yeah, you've been working here since midsummer, or not even midsummer. You've been working here since the first leaf changed. Mm-hmm. So probably like a couple weeks now, and you kind of clocked every recurring face in the crowd at, at like the end of the first week. Mm-hmm. And these guys, they aren't, they aren't dressed like travelers, but they're not from here. Mm-hmm. Boots muddy? Do they seem of the field? Boots not muddy. Uh, well, their business is their own. Turning back to see the peddler finish his story, uh, you see he says, I... These first ones, spirits. You might know them by many names. Our honored friends, they are called. And especially children. You see, he wags his finger. To their face, they are called this. But there is another title they wear. One that reminds us that their world was first and ours was made by theirs. The wild one! <laughs> and the kids jump up. Uh, and, uh, you see uh, uh, the kids sort of laugh, and he laughs as well, and sort of pops a little bit of like a confetti thing, some little trick up his, like, magician's trick up his sleeve. <laughs> so you see this, like, small, very precocious little girl speaks up and says, Is the 
is there anything like spirits here or, or like us could be spirits? He's like, well, I don't know if it's likely that you could be a spirit, little one, but it's not like we don't have tricks of our own. And you see the kids pay a little bit more attention. He says, for long turnings of the seasons, there were many things we learned from the spirits. There were some that learned the ways of magic because some spirit was indeed their father or mother and flowed through them. And there were others that bargained and bargained dearly for the secret that the spirits held. But it's true now that there are some out there in the wide, wide world that learned a different path. And you see that in this moment, he like sort of takes out a little deck of playing cards and flips some cards through his fingers and says, in the hidden places of the world, there have always been those who spoke with kindness and respect for those of the world unseen and hidden. Has anyone here ever had the fortune or misfortune of meeting a witch? And you see the kids all sort of, uh, and he sees this. I says, oh, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. You need only be respectful, little ones. Witches do an important job of speaking to that hidden world on our behalf. And sometimes when we've lost our way, speaking to us on its behalf. And then, of course, I'm sure you've all heard of a wizard. Uh, and <laughs> here he gets like, he gets a little bit bigger and broader. He says, For indeed, it was not too long ago that the first wizard found the secret. And you see the little kid says, What secret? The secret of where those spirits found their secrets from. And uh, the kids get fully lost on this one. They usually go like, look up, and the peddler goes like, "That you'll understand when you're older." <laughs> Ursulon, you hear from the door, Toma. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Rosalind looks at you uh, and says, uh, "The horses are um, <laughs> they're a little bit bigger than most ponies around here. If you could, um, I will tend to them." Uh, thank you. Uh, and you see that she she walks out with you uh, to the stables. Um, you walk around and approach, um, and you see these are the, the guys' horses that they came in on, like three kind of big, challenger-looking type horses. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you see that uh, Rosalind has clearly had a hard time, like, tying them up in this. Like, they, the guys maybe asked for, like, a full, like, can you check their shoes and can you feed them and water yes. them? And they seem, like, not willing to go into the stalls of the stable, essentially. <laughs> uh, I think uh, uh, Ursuline is going to walk up and grab uh, the reins of the three horses, look to Rosalind, uh, and say, I will take care of them. Um, she looks at you and says, oh, all right. Um, and you see she, she, uh, sort of walks back towards the tavern for a moment. Um, what does Ursuline do? Uh, I think once he feels like her eyes aren't on him anymore, is there one that is larger of the three? Yes, there is. Uh, 
I'm going to push my face closer to him, speak softly, uh, saying, My friend, I will make sure you have feed. Please, follow. Uh, this enormous muscular charger, uh, beautiful, like, glossy black mare with a white diamond in the middle of her forehead and white socks, sort of the sort of, like, longer hair around her hooves, um, hears you and walks completely calm back and the two other horses. I think I let go of the... I hold the reins only as long as Rosalind is there mm -hmm. and then let go. Give me a perception check. 18. Uh, you did not feel Rosalind's eyes on you, but you now sense that she stopped halfway to the door. Ursuline is going to want to continue for things to seem normal uh, uh, and just uh, walk with the horses. After, you know, 30 seconds, a minute of doing that, uh, Rosalind walks back in with just like a bucket of oats to sort of place by the door. And you see she turns up and says, you have, uh, you have such a way with, um, with the horses. It's, uh, I... I am comfortable with them. I spent much time with beasts growing up. Oh, um, that's, I, I, I've always wanted to ask, actually, if, um, do, so you grew up on a farm, or? Yes. Oh, I don't, I don't mean to pry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, uh, the, it's just, your, the na your name, you know, Toma, I, I, um, so travel, some travelers came in, come in and they came through Toma, you know, earlier before the summer, before you were working here. Um, and I just wondered if you, if you grew up there or not, or. I spent some time there and my family is up there. Oh. But it has been some time since I returned. Well, that's wonderful. You, so your mother and father are there? Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't, I, again, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't mean to pry. You're very, I, I, I have to, uh, I have to confess something. I stumbled upon some of your things in the stable and I, I, um, and you see that she she looks, and you can see where you keep your stuff kind of hidden. Mm -hmm. It's, like, more hidden than the last time you left it there. Like, there's more, like, hay and straw mm. on top of it. Uh, she clearly tried to, like, hide it again. Um, she was like, I just, I can't, I, I'm really sorry. I know that you like your privacy. My father was very clear about the nature of the deal you struck with him for working here. But I just... We have beds in the inn, and you sleep in the stables, and I just, I thought I'd bring out some a bedroll or some blankets or something like that, and I I was, I saw the sort of little indentation of where you sleep, and I just saw something glinting under the hay, and you have a, you have that, there's a sword under there. Yes. It was given to me by old friends. Rosalind, I, you show me great kindness, but... The reasons I use my money for other things. I, there are more times of the year 
I travel often and there are times of the year where I cannot work. And uh, I, as I said, I grew up around beasts and am comfortable here. Thank you for your kindness, but it is not, it is not necessary. And I would much prefer if you were to not go through my things. Uh, I, I am truly sorry. It was, uh, it, it was terribly rude. And, um, uh, give me an insight check. Uh, 15. I think you see it. This innkeeper's daughter is hopelessly in love with you. And, <laughs> and she, you can tell that she just feels like she, that, that there was a, there was a version of this in her head oh. when she discovered this, like your belongings that she was like, this is how we finally connect. Oh. And it's like not going to plan for her. <laughs> so you just see her go, um, I've been I've been terribly rude, and the sword is so. Your sword, the the and there's a there's a, a small shield in there, some sort of strange round, just like a small round shield as well. Um, if you ever need me to care for them or or to. Rosalind, this is very kind, and I do appreciate it, but it is not necessary. I understand. I'm very glad to hear that you that you ha- had family and and friends somewhere because you're all unfailingly kind and courteous but I know that you've been here for over a month and there are none in the village that can truly call you a friend and I just I just wanted to make sure you knew that you could feel at home here Before you can speak, Ursulan, you hear another voice from the doorway say, Well, of course, he's not at home here. (gasps) And you see the old peddler step into the doorway. He is framed by the falling magnolia petals as he smiles and flips a card through his fingers. Not at home, I would imagine, most places here. Uh, Do I get any... Do any of my heckles go up about impending violence, or does this just feel... Give me perception. Let's go. Uh, another 15. Because of the slope of the ridge, the back of the stables, its second story where you keep the hay, the sort of, like, attic window is actually at ground level for the slope of the ridge behind it, because the slope sort of goes up. You smell flower petals and hay through that window. That window is open, and there are uh, figures that you have not noticed until you thought to become aware, waiting up above in the rafters directly above you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I think uh, I'm going to roll a dice for myself. We're going to see what it is. Okay. Uh, Ursulan is going to uh, how far is my sword from me, and how far is Rosalind from me? Rosalind was gesturing to it. It's five feet away from you. How far is Rosalind from me? What is the exact amount of feet for someone that is really attracted to you, but also <laughs> feels bashful? I'll say five feet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> Enough to, like, touch if any sort of if, thing happens. If, if a hand <laughs> goes out, it could be yeah. met. It yeah, could yeah, be yeah. met, uh, but we're, we're not in the bubble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to quickly dart back, grab my things. Yeah. And move so that where those guys would jump would be in front of me, not cool. behind me. Yep. But keep my eyes on just the man 
uh, coming up the hill, as if I have not known that they are there. Cool. Let's roll initiative. Great. Oh my god! Uh, 19. Uh, you are going to act first. Okay. S- something deep, primal, wild within you um, goes, okay, I know where the things that want to hurt me are. And you leap to the hay and a sword wrapped in blue silk and a gleaming golden pauldron, a broad shoulder pauldron, like a a plate of armor made to wrap around the shoulder and protect the neck and shoulder, uh, come up out of the hay. Uh, Quick question, is there also a music box with those things? There is also a music box with those things. Uh. Ursulan is hopeful and is going to look at the man. You do not understand that which you speak of. You, I beg of you, I beg of you, leave me be. Leave you be? Oh, there's many a clever man in this world who would pay a mighty fine price for a great and wondrous find like you. I know what you are. I know that you do not belong here. And there are questions that need answering for why I have found you in this place. Uh, great. I'm gonna drop glamour. Here's who Ursulon actually is. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Seven foot six, uh, feet tall, truly grow another foot. Uh, large, furry, kind of bear-like body, uh, kind of built more animalistically, kind of have large, like, massive hind feet, almost like a rabbit, uh, the, uh, you know, hands that go out into, massive hands that go out into, like, uh, clawed hands with thumbs. His head has the same plumage as a horned owl, uh, but his face is more feline. It has the uh, philtrum, learned that's what it's called, Uh, has the philtrum, the kind of split lip, going down into a mouth uh, from which two tusks uh, kind of jut up from the jaw, angular face, uh, but the same rich hazel eyes. I am uh, standing out like a furball, uh, so I have hidden step, um, uh, and with a moment of sadness looking at Rosalind, I am going to uh, use my bonus action to use hidden step to become invisible, uh, and I am going to run. As the menacing travelers, the sort of brute force uh, men drop from the ceiling. You have already vanished in a twinkling of starlight. I would like to use my speech of beast and leaf, which allows me uh, charisma on influence. Uh, Offers me advantage on charisma checks to influence animals. Uh, I would like to turn uh, to the mayor Mm -hmm. uh, who I led into the stable and say, run. And I will chase after them. Uh, uh, and I would like them to, I, my hope is that they will charge through their masters and I will follow. That is a nat 20 on the horse's initiative. <laughs> let's go. Uh, let's give, go, horses. Uh, let's give me persuasion with advantage. I think we'll call this just a, a, a DC, I think DC 10, you can get them to freak out. DC 15, they will do exactly as you say. That is only going to be a 12. The horses scatter out into the stable. Uh, As they do so, give me one last stealth check as you try to rush past the peddler in the doorway without alerting him to your presence. Uh, That's going to be a 13. All right, this guy's got a plus five. 
gets an 18. You make it past him out the doorway, and uh, he whips around. You f- hear the men drop from the rafters. You see they're carrying clubs, blackjacks, and uh, the man, the peddler, turns around to you, and you see he flips a card around in his hand that does not have the face of a playing card. Instead, inscribed on it in small writing is something in Imperial. Uh, And you see he blows on the royal blue ink written on the blank playing card and motes of scintillating gem-like blue sparks fly out as he feels you brush past him and you are hit with a fairy fire spell. Blowing on the surface of the card, the peddler, who now you see does have a kind of hungry, sallow look that is the first time you will recognize in your life that a thing that you were born to, the magic that flows through you, for indeed you are a spirit of the hidden world, that gift many mortal men hunger for, and the hunger hollows them out from within. The dust of a long shattered sapphire spread on a quick wind from his mouth and scatter illuminating an edge of the magnolia tree, the surface of the well, the dust of the road, and outline your body, invisible though it is, in sparkling light as his spell clings to you, a tracking spell from this hedge mage. He bellows out to the men inside, after the wild one, he's making for the woods! I'm gonna make a an athletics roll for these men versus the horses that have scattered within the stable. That is a three for the men. Yeah. Come on, horses. And that is a 15 for the horses. Let's go, horses. Let's go, horses. <laughs> uh, struggling to get past their own steeds, the men within push and pull, and you can hear them sort of fighting and jostling with the steeds out there. You see the peddler standing out there. Rosalind just runs out of the door and throws a bucket of water over the peddler's head. Uh, um, Why did you just be crazy? I love her. Um, uh, and he <laughs> spits up, uh, swats, uh, and you see that Rosalind looks at you and begins to flee down the road to where you know one of the town elders is, one of the village elders. She's just running to go basically get help that these strange men have started to cause trouble in the village. Mm-hmm. That is your turn. I think the belt, uh, my the sword is getting tucked into the belt. The music box is getting thrown uh, into a uh, into a pocket, and I think uh, that's all Ursulan has in the world that he carries with him, uh, and he will take it with him into the night. Uh, full dash, uh, full movement. You take off as fast as you can, dropping essentially to all fours as you yeah. charge forward into the woods. Given, given partial cover by the trees, uh, the peddler reaches for a spell, one that he knows will work, even given the cover of the tree line, reaches, pulls up another card, and flicks it with an old, dirty, partially broken fingernail. Uh, and as he hits it, uh, you see some symbols on the card float 
off the cart a couple of sickly green cross-hatched runes that float out, and as he again flicks his hand towards you, the runes fire off, swirling and corkscrewing with trails of green fire behind them, and two of them slam into you for 11 points of damage. I have uh, two hit points remaining. Guys, <laughs> oh. so nice of you guys to meet my character. I'm going to go work on my secondary character. Uh, yes, down to two. <laughs> on your next turn, you leave the range of his spell. Blood gushes from you, hitting the ground. At the end of this fall... Moss and flowers will grow from where that blood touched the earth, but you will not be here to see them. Out through the night, you hear the bellow. After him, you fools! After him! I know you're out there, honored friend! What are you doing in our world? continues to rustle the tops of the trees and as quickly as it pierced the nighttime sky the howl of the angry hedge mage fades as we fade from this place and also fade from this time five years later oh what <laughs> you little sneak you do anything on the radio endless desert of white sand that seems at first to invite confusion by the presence of strange pools and lakes that one quickly realizes are not water at all, but simply glass, sometimes uncovered by the ceaseless wind that moves the dunes in their endless dance. The sun above beats down with such ferocity that the sky around it seems to fade from pale and powdered blue to something almost approaching white, for there is not a cloud anywhere to be seen. This stark and alien landscape is as beautiful as it is deeply hostile. However, in this land that seems to show no indication of life, that would seem to preclude any possibility of habitation, let alone thriving, perhaps for this very reason, or perhaps the causer of this state of affairs, is the impossible made manifest the gleaming spire of the citadel. We see a tower of glass, and as we approach that tower, we see that tower is something of an understatement. Rising more than a mile into the sky is a magical beacon of the impossible wrought by will and understanding into existence. The citadel 
stands here at the center of this desert. Jagged, crystalline structures at its base move out in diagonal slants to the ground like the base of a massive, naturally forming crystal. And within these massive prisms and geometric spires are the glimmering shapes of themselves platforms that float. And within these platforms, there are buildings. The buildings made of white marble or of brick, some with gardens, and we see flowers and irrigation fountains in the middle of this desert and flowing water irrigated. Uh, The various floating campuses within these crystal structures. And at the center, at the very opposite of a diagonal, the most proud and vertical gleaming spire uh, referred to here as the Irian, uh, which is the central tower of the citadel. This erupts past the structures of the base, and within that are gleaming prisms, light reflected, this glass enclosure, this mighty tower that from certain angles casts the sunlight in searing sheets of blinding radiance throughout the desert. At the base of the Irian, a gate of glass opens as an entire let's say, quarter-mile-wide platform with a campus of buildings and beautiful red brick pathways and green grass lowers down. And the band strikes up to welcome home the returning heroes. Chariots pulled by massive beasts conjured by magic itself. You see that there are proud, triple-horned rams that pull chariots, their white fur marked by silver brands that empower them with spells, pull wide war wagons, marching between the wagons and beyond them, we see white uniforms with blue brocade and instruments of brass. Huge drums. And the band strikes up as the the assembled junior students of the Citadel erupt with cheers, some of them so moved by patriotic zeal that they weep, throwing petals into the air. A group of wizards returns home from war. More than half are here, but not all. And those that have returned bear 
their uniforms clean and bright, but faces and hands marred by what they have seen. Some faces hold endless pride and celebration, having risen with glee to what they met on the far edges of the empire. Other faces turn inwards, accepting this celebration in a way quiet and doing yet again what they must. As they march and the band plays, these returning wizards move towards a dais where their instructors, leaders, advisors, and a strange mixture of their academic and military superiors await them with medals, brocades, designations, promotions, encouragements, titles, all manner of scrolls and emblems await them on a vast table. And above and to the side, a great box, banisters, rose petals blooming all throughout the citadel. The existence of plant life is central. Ivy and roses and grass and trees can be seen everywhere. And though the glass of the Erian itself takes the deadly light of the desert outside and makes it instead just really goddamn bright, <laughs> cuts that by about 25%, the plant life here with its conjured water and filtered sunlight thrives and the smell here is rich with honey and rose and flowers and jasmine. The thrones assembled within the viewing dais, surrounded as they are by roses, look down to give homage and praise to the returning heroes to show that the mission of the Citadel not only lives but prospers. Dressed in deep blue with white brocade, a deep navy undershirt, and then a bright royal blue robe with a white V tabard over it, it's partially military linings, is an ancient archmage. Uh, it's an ancient archmage with deep, curly, white, long beard, bald head, little round nose, who is fast asleep. The Archmage Silence is flanked by his apprentice. Abria, could you describe your character for us? <gasps> yes. <clears throat> uh, you see Suverin Kedberkat. She's six foot tall, live and almost painfully rigid in her posture, like a dancer or a fencer. Uh, she's got medium brown skin with like golden undertones that are contrasted by the like deep navy blues and greens of her like incredibly well-tailored wool coat and silk trousers tucked into boots with like silvery white uh, detail. Uh, she's got high cheekbones that are almost lost in soft features, just sort of leaving childhood and ad 
adolescence, coming into adulthood. Uh, her hair is actually bright teal and braided and bound upward and uh, ornately decorated with little silvery white clips and chains, one of which terminates uh, kind of off of her bun with like a little sensor with a single drop of amber resin that's burning, this like kind of woodsy, spicy scent that you don't find anywhere else here in the Citadel. Um, she has large brown eyes uh, with a, just a, a almost strange teal cast over the pupils. And uh, she's scanning the room with the bearing of a person that sees profoundly and is perpetually perceived. And she'll just gently reach out uh, with a hand, uh, like delicate long fingers and on her right thumb, a big silver ring with like an emerald in it and just gently tap uh, the arch, arch and try to wake him up. Sir. Sir. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's over. No, we're still going. Oh, very well. Yeah. Good, good. Heroes of the war. They have come, um... I'm not speaking at this one, am I? Not today, sir. Not today. Good, good, good. I just kind of pick a little uh, falling rose petal off of his shirt and flick it. Good. Well, I'm... Do you think they want me to wave? Oh, yeah, we should We should wave. All right. Hello. Yay. Hello. Good job, heroes. <laughs> Sorry. Can't just say... What's that? Uh, nothing, nothing. You're... They did a good job. They did. Uh, oh, yes, I heard about that one. Uh, you look down and see, again, you see a very beautiful man, shaved head, deep brown skin, sort of noble features, sort of like proud bearing, um, a scar that you can tell has been altered to look glorious by being partially healed from how mangled and bad it would have been. A lot of wizards that come back from the front line will have their scars partially reduced rather than fully healed. Yeah. Uh, and he's gotten, you can tell he's gotten like the beauty scar treatment and has Su come. Mm -hmm. So I was going to say, Suvi shifts in her chair as she clocks him. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, you recognize this guy. You were in the upper school with this guy. He speaks uh, with this big booming voice as he gets up onto the stage. Deep forest green robes. He has the bracers of an evoker. Um, uh, he's called Silver. Uh, he's called Silver. Um, and uh, he proudly stands as you hear sort of bellowing out with a minor cantrip, making their voice boom out from their throat. For services rendered in defense of the Imperium, the Honorable Wizard Silver is granted station and title dwelling in the villa in the Hall of Heroes. Big booms. It goes up with applause. Flowers rain and you see Silver smiles salutes the box and you see makes direct eye contact with you uh, having been some while since you were students together. Stevie's going to try to uh, one, she shifts to try to cover the very obvious blush on her cheeks uh, but then is going to give him just a little nod and a smirk. She's trying to play it cool. 
he smiles down there uh, and moves off into sort of the people that have already been decorated. Um, you know, Silver was part of a group of wizards that it was always either going to be he came back to be fast-tracked to like the upper great warriors of you know the, the great war wizards of the citadel or he was not going to come back um and it was a coin flip and he got the right side of that coin um you view the rest of this ceremony how is suvi feeling in this moment as you watch this ceremony of the returning heroes uh, at some point she's grabbed uh just a little paper banner uh, that's got like the list of ceremonies and awards and uh, the back half she's just been subtly like tearing it apart trying to look impassive and formal but all of this is so deeply frustrating because uh, he's out there he went and saw war and returned a hero and I've spent the last two years keeping an old man awake when he needs to be awake. <sighs> Damn it. I let him sleep. <laughs> After the ceremony, uh, you are once again surrounded by other archmages, and uh, Silence is sort of speaking with some of the other wizards who are here. Um, and a few, probably out of the, like, 60 wizards that came home, probably only five of them are highly decorated enough now to be here in this private luncheon. The room you are in uh, is actually in a dome of water. So you see that there is a hovering lapis lazuli disc, probably about... 90 feet in the air that is a small conjured portal that is connected to some kind of ocean or some source of water and is summoning water into the citadel that comes down in a large dome almost like a glass cover for a cake and so it is cool and misty in here and the sunlight's just coming in through the glass of the exterior and then through this like water dome you're in this garden and you see that there are a number of servants moving throughout the space that are handing out food and refreshments. And looking at uh, the Archmages, there's, again, probably like five or so of these returning heroes, one of whom is Silver. Um, but you also see a surprising uh, figure here, which uh, walking in as the water sort of parts uh, is Steel. We see an older woman. She wears brilliant golden armor, filigreed, embossed, covered with many arcane runes within the lingua arcana that you recognize. Normally this kind of armor historically would have been completely useless, but of course this armor is, for all of its decoration, incredibly practical. She has a high collar on a white cloak, a jewel-hilted sword at her side, and a iron and silver-bound black spellbook attached and holstered at her hip. Her skin is a ruddy pink that's still a little bit uh, 
a little some crow's feet and some age here. Her bright red hair has started to gray a little bit, but it's kind of hard to see because, of course, she has a strange kind of marking of long streaks of white through her red hair and four wavy, tapering white streaks across her face, one of which covers an eye, and that eye is white in the iris, which gives her a little bit of a striking and kind of unsettling vibe, which is not a bad vibe for someone who is ultimately the sword of the Citadel. Uh, she walks in. Uh, in. In this moment, what do you think Suvi is up to in this luncheon celebrating these returning heroes? Uh, Suvi's foregoing food and trying to cut a uh, fine and deeply unapproachable figure in the corner, hoping that Silver would come by and they could speak. But then the moment Steel walks through, uh, she like hustles over with the same like speed uh, an excited child would be to go see someone and immediately rushes over uh, and stops short of embracing her. Uh, Steel turns to look at you and says, Suvi, I, uh, I, I hope that you were not too burdened this morning with your exhausting responsibilities. And she uh, darts her eyes over to the Archmage Silence. <laughs> Rude. I have done my duty to keep an old man awake while watching heroes return. So I'm having a great day. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I, yeah. I, I relish my ability that my station is high enough that I don't have to go to those. That's rude. Well, mm. hey, I love when the heroes return, and I'm glad that they return, and uh, I'll go tell them that I'm glad that they returned, but ultimately they're going to be going back out again very shortly. <sighs> yeah. At least they get a little bit of time here to remember mm. what we're fighting for and what's waiting. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> well, I don't want to take you away from your duties unless uh, you... There are no duties. You know there's no duties. There are some. I know there's no duties. I'm going to go back and do his paperwork while he takes a nap. Or eats a very soft cookie. Suvi, you... <laughs> Suvi, you know how enormous of an opportunity it was that you... You're the first wizard in the history of the Citadel that was moved into a leadership track upon entering the Citadel. Right, so why does it feel like they're locking me in a little room and forgetting about me? You're not forgot... Every Look at the other apprentices of the Archmages. And you do look out and see there are other apprentices here all of those apprentices either came from the war wizard track or from the researcher track and are all the the next youngest one is like 40 they treat me like a child you're very young okay they treat me like a child and yet i know that if i had one chance they would know how incredible of a talent i am but i am wasted <clears throat> Wasted, sitting in a room, reading books. <sighs> Please do something. I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> we we make jokes. Uh, 
she smiles and looks at you and goes, you have endless potential. And I know that tending to the ministrations of a tired old man does not utilize your gifts to the best of their ability. I'm one of the best wizards that have ever come through the Citadel, and I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse. But go on. (sighs) Your mother and father were each recognized in time for their talents. Your father became a provost of the eighth, one of the most gifted tactical geniuses the Citadel's ever produced. Your mother was the sage of the fundament. And when they were your age, they were still grinding away as a junior, junior apprentice buried in a library. What they would have done to be the apprentice of an archmage at your age, I can't even imagine. They got a chance to prove themselves. A chance that you were so recognized for your gifts that you were able to bypass. We recognized your talents immediately. Yeah, yeah. It's all very honorable, and I am very proud. Let's take a walk. Thank you. The sun begins to set, and boy does the energy in the Citadel change as the sun begins to set. The stars will come out, and all of a sudden, you know, without that the ceaseless beating of the sun, a night that will suddenly fe- you'll be floating, you know, a half a mile up within the Erie and surrounded by beautiful buildings and flowers, and it has the buzzing feel of an academy brought to life of people talking about important things and all these brilliant minds brought to this one place. As the sun sets and golden light filters in through the glass, you pass room after room of either a small cafe where, you know, students on break sit and sip small coffee from little brilliant blue and white cups that some foamy caffeinated drink passes their lips and they talk excitedly about some fiddly magical problem, some minor bit of the lingua arcana, a new symbol, a new word discovered. You walk past a massive hangar building, these like big silvery ribs of a white arcane canvas, and within it you can see artificers working alongside wizards, these like powerful wrapped white gloves with chainmail on the inside as they build some massive structural automaton, some strange silvery chrome centipede that with some, you know, insectoid mechanical structure, who knows what it will do, and you begin to walk uh, through the big doors of the building that has these brilliant, uh, ever-burning torches that are completely cool to the touch. Uh, No risk of fire breaking out within the Citadel. Uh, You walk past and hear a lecture going on as evening classes begin, and you see a group of younger, like 16-year-old wizards that have not yet taken their test to formally enter the Citadel as an old, droning lecturer wizard points and says... We understand within the formal taxonomy of the world of spirits the delineation between certain classifications of spiritual entity vis-a-vis 
the axis of celestial to fiend. But wherein within that delineation do we find form for those spirits of nature best known to the lecture drones on you see half the class wide awake and riveted by this <laughs> and the kids that you can cannot help but somewhat relate to in this moment that are either falling asleep because they don't have what it takes or falling asleep because they already know this <laughs> i just want to make eye contact with any of the ones whose eyes are wandering and just give a little like i know man <laughs> i know <laughs> uh as you move through, um, Steel speaks to you and says, <sighs> um, I can try to talk to... Yes, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, what, what do you want me to and say? I mean, you can't ask to be moved out of the apprentice position. It, 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 no, what an honor. What a gift. What a joy. Sufi, it is an honor. To, yeah, to, you're, you're, I know. You're a step away from being in the leadership of the Citadel. I, yeah, okay, 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 that, that. So, it's, this is the most beautiful, incredible place in the world, and I don't know anything but this. How are you supposed to lead when you, your entire world was libraries and lecture halls and papers uh, for t- 10 years? Ten years. All I've done is study. I'm so tired of just knowing. What if, is there like a, can you go, just do like a walkabout? Can I just go do anything? My heart rate jumped up today for the first time in a month. Please let me go outside, please. Uh, Give me a perception check. And natural one. Perfect. Hot damn, there it is. The first one. The The first first one. You'll have to see it. Oh no! Hey, at least it's on a perception check. Exactly. <laughs> um, you have, you don't even know. You're so tunnel vision. You don't even notice that you are now on a balcony on a sort of third story of this building. Uh, there are beautiful, uh, like hyacinth like flowers around. You see, there's a couple like you're sort of like a, there's an arch and a balcony. So you're sort of held in this little cradle. There's some bird baths around here, uh, and you see a couple of birds come into the bird baths. It doesn't bother you that these birds are uh, partially fixed illusions. There's the ecosystem here is hard to manage, oh. and people didn't. So these birds are fabricated, but that's okay. They're very pretty. Um, Steel looks at you and says, "Well, uh, you're about to get your wish." What? Oh, what? <clears throat> and she immediately like tries to regain some sort of posture and bearing. Um, it, it's, it's, there's a, oh, Suvi, I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, there's been too many times in my life that I've had to give you bad news. Uh, and I'm doing it yet again. Grandmother Wren is very ill. Oh, no. Uh, Grandmother Wren is very ill. Um... I'm not sure how much, but I've spoken to the Archmages and given everything that you have given for the Citadel, given what your parents gave for the Citadel, an allowance is going to be made. I 
we we have license to open a traveling door to allow you to return the we can place you at Silbury and then it's a short ride to Toma. Okay. I I never got to Oh god, Silbury. Thank you. I don't know what you had to trade or thank you. How long do I get? There's not there's not a hard and fast on it. I, I, I mean, I, I would assume, you know, I would love for you to be there. Um, I would love for you to be there for as long as it takes, if you understand. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the important thing is just to stay in touch with us. We can send, um, you know, we'll send a a speaking mirror through with you and you can stay in touch with us but um and actually speaking of you see the stuff that you rolled in that one perception on uh <laughs> she she hands you a speaking mirror which is oh. just a way to sort of stay in touch as yeah. a communication device she hands you a book and a scroll case um she says uh these are um for grandmother Wren if you would be kind enough to give them to her um, you see the book uh, has a title on it that says uh, Stars of the Southern Skies um, and uh, and then a sealed scroll case. Um, she then looks and says and uh, and reaches into the ivy and pulls a tall <gasps> wrought glass staff. Ah! Sorry, sorry. I'm very normal about this. Um, in the light of day, the glass of the body of the staff will seem sort of clear and radiant, reflecting sunlight from many angles. At night, a small helix of starlight, as though a small patch of the nighttime sky was encased within it, circles up to the top of the staff, which spreads into a pair of crystal wings containing a rounded uh, sigil of the citadel. That's for me. That's for me. Give it, give it, give it, give it, give it, give it. You're not really supposed to say give it Please. when presented with a staff yes. of the... Look, there's no one here. It's just you and me. Give it. <laughs> Please. I Thank you. Little gremlin. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, look at me. Look at... I look dope. This is cool and I'm Thank you. And she looks around one more time and then just absolutely like tackles Steel with a hug. Steel laughs and embraces you and immediately starts crying. Yeah. She just goes, Don't cry. I'll oh, cry. What are you doing? Crying because you're. <sighs> it's very meaningful to me. Soft and stone should be here. Growing up with your mother, I. I made so many promises to her that I would take care of her and getting to look after you makes up for the fact that I didn't get to keep those promises. You told me years ago that what you put your magic in stays, a little bit of you stays there in she put her magic in the world and you've been protecting it 
So you've been keeping your promise? And I don't know if I've ever said it, and I know I wasn't maybe the easiest kid, but thank you. You didn't have to take care of me, but you did. She wipes tears from her eyes and goes, When you believe in a cause like your mother and father did, I don't know that there's much of a difference between the things you have to do and the things you choose to do. Maybe that's what peace is, is when your heart unites the things that you choose to do and the things that you have to do. So that duty becomes a choice and one that you are glad for. That's really deep for a person that hits stuff with a sword for a living. You are gonna see what I do one day and you're gonna be so sorry for all the times you made fun of me. Everyone, no, just, here's, the, here's, here's what I understand. I also have a book. Yeah. And you, I have a book and a sword. You just have a book. Someone explain. Excuse me, I have a book and this dope-ass staff. Don't take the things I gave you <laughs> as points against me. It's mine. I gave you that staff. Yeah. I put your father's ring yep. on your finger, and I... Looks good on me. <laughs> I look great right now. She scowls and says, you are a piece of work. Yes. Honestly, I don't know why it took us so long to get you the hell out of here. <laughs> That's your fault. Speaking of which, uh, when do I get to go? your way to one of the many halls of teleportation. Um, you see runic circle in the ground and nearby there is a teleportation specialist deep blue robes. You see that their eyes are already sort of rolling back in their head as they begin to sort of calculate the different symbols. Up above you see there are moving constellations painted against the roof that as the teleportation specialist below begins to chart the trajectory of where you're going, the projected sky in the dome moves to reflect the sky of where you will be going. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Uh, you arrive, <laughs> your teal hair in a slightly different configuration yeah, than the last time yeah. we saw you. <laughs> Steel stands there um, and says, um, when you arrive there, I would. Pro she hands you a purse of uh, forty gold pieces, forty like imperial gold coins. It says you're going into a land that is. I know you remember from when you were young, but as an adult, you should know that while this is technically under the sphere of the empire, mm. this is very far from Kamsarazas' shores, and so. Normally, in, if we were in the heart of the Empire, you would be able to go up and just ask for a horse and get one. It will probably be better if you ask to buy one uh, rather than hmm. uh, simply get one. Gross. 
Yes, and there's a good reason for that. I can't promise you that there will not be agents of the Dominion or the Protectorate there. This is at the far edges of the Empire. And so I would say, uh, and here she moves a hand over your glass staff, and a small cantrip goes into effect, a little minor spell, and it looks like a uh, sort of brass-banded wooden walking stick. Mm. She says, so when you need it, use it. And if you don't need it, a little bit of a glamour just to be aware of the situations where it is important to let people know who you are and be aware of the ones where maybe it's important that they not know who you are. <sighs> this is what you asked for. Yeah, yeah. No, I want. This is great. I want. This is what. Uh, I am a proud daughter of the Citadel and I will make you and everyone proud. I could do this. I could do this. It's going to be fine. The traveling door begins to open. Give me an insight check. Please, please, Dice. <gasps> Natural 20. There it is. Ooh, okay. Wow, big Ooh, spread. Okay. Spreads. What, what is the story we're trying to tell? Who could say? You see steel looking, uh, you, you clock it really, like right as the traveling door is getting open for you to step through, um, steel goes uh, sort of like, has a moment of lost focus where she's like lost in memory. And you can see her face goes into that neutral where you're not even putting a facial expression. You're yeah. you're you're so replaying a memory that there's not even a, a sort of emotion on your face. And she's just staring at your forehead. Uh, and I just want to squeeze her hand the same way I do to bring uh, Archmage Silence kind of back to the world and say, it's going to be okay. I just... Young wizards love to talk and hear in the center of the desert we made who could question the might of wizards? And she squeezes your hand this time and gets in really close, and you realize that your mother's greatest friend and a woman who raised you after the unthinkable happened is a very intense woman. And she gets close and says, don't let the fraternizing of patriotic students blind you to how much there is in the world that is not us. Oh, and I think Subi's face goes completely, uh, she's been straddling that line of like adulthood and childhood and she's just lost momentarily in that child, like open, a little afraid, a little pensive expression before she reschools herself and gives a little nod. One of the smartest things your father ever said that snapped me out of a trance when I first met him. And admittedly, when I first met, I grew to love your father very, very much, but <laughs> I knew his and your mother's reputations, and uh, and mm -hmm. I, was, uh, I was very protective of my friend, as I had every right to be. And one of the first things your father said that charmed me due to its insight, which your father had in great quantity, 
the entire world of wizardcraft from the first elders that reached into the shadow and wrought the first secrets of the lingua arcana from the depths of ignorance into the sudden light of insight and realization. The most common of their downfalls has been seeing the humility and serenity of witches and underestimating it. I'm no stranger to witches. Suvi, standing in the center of the stone circle, the wizard to your right finally finds the constellation of stars to a rest with points of light at the end of each of their fingers and materializing from motes of light that begin as nothing more than specks of dust a rose and purple doorway of light that begins only as the faintest halo and begins to spool across a doorway, iridescent film of magical energy. The path navigated by the stars moves forward. This road moves upon you. The door of light surrounds, envelops, and closes upon you, and as it constricts, you are already gone, such that the collapsing nexus of light vanishes in a burst, and nothing of the door nor the wizard that it carries is left except for a tiny spiral of vapor. Steel regards it, and then it is gone. And we move with, but also past Suvi, not to where she is headed in the moment of this magic, but further still past the stone port town of Silbury, up the winding roads through familiar trees that we have seen their type before. In the pastoral rolling hills, farmlands and cottages, deep, thick forests with moss-covered stone walls, patches of sunflower and corn, little hamlets gathered around a blacksmith shop or a little maypole in a dancing hall. This is a place where the people have been living in this way of life for uncounted years. And we find a village, a village named Toma. Many in this village know that they are fortunate to live so near the cottage of a witch, though they know not the story of how this witch came to live here, nor how this witch came to find her apprentice. The nighttime fades, the sun rises as it does every day, and up the road, perhaps only about an hour's walk from the village of Toma, winding hard-packed earth through the deep, 
roots and moss and ferns of the forest, we see a cottage. is old and broad and welcoming the deep rich brown of its high thatched roof that slopes down to hang over white plaster walls and welcoming wooden beams garden rich flowers the buzzing of bees and the corner of a shrine up on top of the hill past the cottage we see an old goat pen and a garden shed and a little footpath down to the stream that flows down past the hill and a small footbridge over the stream that leads off into the deeper woods where many adventures were once had by the children who called this place home. And as always when the sun rises, we hear, as we have heard every morning, as a proud veteran, ancient rooster, <laughs> crows the morning. Within the cottage, its familiar kitchen and fireplace, the workshop that faces the road, built up and around an old enclosure at the edge of the house, large spinning wheel and bottles of tinctures and ointments and hanging from the slightly sloped roof are bundled and dried flowers and herbs and glass ornaments diamond patterned windows just some of them slightly colored a little amber or a little blue as the light comes in seated in the workshop a young and newly married couple from the village of Toma. The young woman with her hair tied up in a small bandana with a worker's apron tied on and the man with a small and short-brimmed little cap uh, who sits next to his new wife holding her hands in his hands. This couple has come from Toma, Arin and Melia, to seek the council of a witch. Um, my, my wife and I have been trying for some time, and our parents said that sometimes it, it takes longer, but I, I think we are just very eager, and, and we wished to seek the counsel of Grandmother Wren. Um, and you see Melia speaks up and says, Aaron <laughs> uh, grew up uh, all the way in Port Talon, and, and I only met him at a summer fair. He, he couldn't believe uh, I mean, you see, uh, Aaron says, well, the legends of Grandmother Wren reach from one side of a calm to the other. She is, <laughs> I mean, I didn't know. And you see that Melia smiles and says, I never knew that we grew up next to, I mean, it's Grandmother Wren's just, She's been at the spring fair every year. I was just she's our she's all our grandmother. I didn't think. And you see, Aaron kind of shakes his head in disbelief and says, "Well, not everyone is lucky enough, my darling, to live under the protection of a witch, let alone one that seems to have given as much love and joy as as Grandmother Wren." And you see, 
Melia shrugs and says, well, I guess that's the way with blessings is we always have a hard time counting them. That's true. I feel like it's easy to take for granted the abilities and the care of witches. Grandma Ran has spent her entire life looking over this little town and and now it's my turn. And unfortunately, Grandma Ran is uh, indisposed at the moment, but is there anything that I can help you with? Um, they both look at each other. You see uh, Melia squeezes Aaron's hand because, you know, Melia's grown up her entire life seeing Grandma Ren and has also grown up her entire life knowing her young apprentice. Melia, you've like, you, you, were, you were kids together. You, she grew up in the, in the village near you. Um, not that you necessarily got to be that close to any of the kids that grew up in Toma, but uh, you see she squeezes Aaron's hand Almost to counsel him through a little disappointment, <laughs> as though, as though he was he missed Grandmother Wren's ability to minister to the town by only a year or two. Um, I'm I'm sure that she'll be up and about and helping to administer to all of the town's needs before we know it. But in the meantime, uh, Melia can attest to uh, my abilities in terms of. Helping with all manners, uh, both uh, uh, in regards to healing or marital. Uh, You see that uh, Melia smiles (laughs) and Aaron kind of blushes. Uh, uh, (laughs) Yeah. Give me give me an insight check. (laughs) Absolutely roasting Aaron right now. Oh, wow. Okay, that will be a 25. Uh, Aaron is uncomfortable with how attractive you are. Like he he it was one, oh, damn. it was one it was one it was one thing for him to come talk to like a sweet old grandma about him and his wife trying to have a baby, and now he's here talking to like I hello like I will be the young witch helping you with whatever <laughs> it seems to be going on, and he's just it's like man I wanted to meet a legendary witch, <laughs> and I and also now I'm talking to the apprentice, but you see Melia squeezes and says says. My my darling husband, uh, Ame is a wonderful witch. Uh, I've seen Ame has, has been tending to those pieces of business that Grandmother Ren was uh, needed help with for years and years and years. Uh, there's nothing that I wouldn't trust Ame to be able to help us with, uh, unless perhaps uh, you, we were going to ask for a love charm, in which case I would say maybe let's hold off. Okay. Yeah, 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 you you do one spring festival of of love charms and you never hear the end of it. No, 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 no. It did work. It worked. Some would say too, too well. well. Yes, yes, too well. Yes. That's right. Um uh Melia sort of speaks up and says, "We we know that sometimes it takes longer for some people than others and uh-huh. and both of you know our our parents you know both Aaron's and mine said that it was too early to come and see you and that we should wait, give it more of a chance but I mean how much of a chance have you been giving it um <laughs> you see that uh Take my meaning um uh Aaron uh, looks over at, at Melia and she speaks and says um well we wed about five months ago, and have been trying since then. Um, wow. Uh, 
all my nods, mm-hmm. Im- impressed. What? Let me ask. What kind of divinatory tool uh, do you think Ame would use? Oh no! <laughs> a decision. A decision. Oh, oh I no. did not expect to be making those in this game. Oh no! A decision. Um, so real. I would say. Hmm. You know, uh, why don't you step outside with me for a moment? Uh, both of them look at each other, and both of them go and step outside with you. Um, late morning, it's going to probably be noon in another hour or so, and uh, you can see that there's, like, beautiful kind of, like, pollen on the air a little bit that's sort of, like, in the morning light, enough humidity to kind of cast some rays over the stream and the grass. Uh, Arn and Melia step out. Arn's still holding Melia's hands, and she smiles and looks at you. I close my eyes. I can hear the bees in the apiary, not too far from the cottage, the buzzing. I can hear birds, flocks of them, passing overhead or nesting in the trees. And I listen to the birds and the bees. And I ask them in perhaps not a verbal language, and certainly one that the young couple wouldn't recognize. I ask, so, what's the diagnosis here? Give me a survival check. Or actually insight is fine, too. Those would both be a 23. (gasps) Double 23s. A morning jay takes off over the tree line, swooping and disappearing back into the foliage. You hear the buzzing of the bees, some of them finding a fresh bank of flowers hanging over the edge of the stream, their little bumbling bodies landing and dipping the flower down with their weight till it almost touches the babbling water of the stream. You hear the shifting of a branch far off in the woods as something steps gingerly through the leaves or uh, th- uh, through the uh, the leaf cover two crows alight far off over the hill you look up and your eyes go into a softer focus this couple will bear a child the child will be the dearest heart and center of the world for Melia. It will be a child that will care for her when she is old and will make sure that the last years of her life are lived in comfort and joy and a feeling of happiness. Sense the chirping of songbirds nearby and a chirping goes silent as a bird uh, moves into the hollow of a tree to go into a nest with three eggs. Arn will not stay faithful to Melia and will break her heart. That son of a bitch. <sighs> okay. Thank you, friends. <clears throat> I return to the moment. And I look at them, this young, happy, vibrant couple, and one of whom has been a lifelong, if not friend, community member. 
Um, I pull out a ring from one of my many pouches and I hand it over to Oren. Mm -hmm. And I say, you must wear this and you will have a child, a child that will be your joy, your treasure. Uh, They smile and you watch uh, both of them uh, begin to weep. Um, give me, uh, give me an insight check. Thirteen. Thirteen. Uh, having come back to this present moment, you see, uh, that Arin weeps as well as Melia, and knowing what you have seen, I think you cannot tell whether he knows or not what you have seen. So, wear that, and soon you will have your desire. Um, Melia wraps her arms around you in a hug and cries. Arun leaves a hand on her shoulder, smiling. He puts the ring on uh, his finger. Oh, oh no. That's not where you put the ring. No. He looks and says, I'm sorry? That is not where you place the ring. Should this charm work? Uh, you see Melia and Aaron both <laughs> look at each other and Aaron goes, that can't be. And Melia goes, you heard the witch. <laughs> <laughs> And Aaron says, "Well, that 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 it makes me. A, I don't. I, I don't know." And Melia says, "She said we will have a child who will be the joy of our lives. So we're gonna just that." If I, she, she, she says, "One moment, Ame." And she gets up in his grill. She's a little bit shorter than him, so he's got to. Yeah. And she gets up up his grill and says, "So let me understand this. I am to carry this child, and I'm going to admit then with the threat of maybe dying one day if I. And I'm going to carry that and go through all the pain of labor. And you're not willing to put a ring where the witch told you to put the ring. You're going to put the ring where she said." And he goes, "Okay, all right, okay." And he, you see, he sort of holds it and stands there, sort of looking dumbly for a moment, and then says, "Ah." Uh, he just starts sweating. Uh, not, not during. Did I stutter? <gasps> he goes, oh, okay. And you see, Melia says, thank you, thank you. <laughs> All the best to you, Melia. And good luck. If you need any help with the pregnancy, you know I have the right potions and... She says, well, "Of course." She says, "I'll, I'll, I'll send. Uh, uh, yes, of course. I'll, I'll come myself for as long as I can, and then I'll send Aaron or someone else." But thank you for for everything. Um, Aaron looks uh, fucking pale as a ghost. Um, he he sort of turns to walk away. He puts his hand on Melia's back. She has like taken the ring and is now holding on to it, uh, <laughs> and uh, it just looks beyond happy. Uh, and as they walk away, they head up towards the road, back towards Toma, and you see a moment of Aaron looking back over his shoulder at you. And uh, I put my two fingers up. I point to my eyes, and I point to him, and I smile. 
Um, give, I'm gonna make an insight check for him. Give me, give me a, a like charisma check just at, to, to see if he can pick up what you're communicating. Seventeen. Uh, as you look at him and point towards him, what is it you are communicating in your witch's glare to him? Oh, it is. I am watching you. <laughs> Uh, uh, Aaron is able to clock that and whatever I think you see in that look a moment of him just being as terrified as he is being somewhat enchanted in his first interaction with a witch and when he meets that enchanting visage of the incredible magic woman he met and sees what you have described coming back at him he whips his head around and (laughs) hustles his darling wife down the road (laughs) as fast as he can he still Uh, liked it a little bit though (laughs) like that you can be terrified and still develop a new kink yeah for sure of course um uh incredible um Ame, uh, you watch them depart, um, and once again see two people for whom the story of life continues, having come to a witch to get what they need. And now, with them gone, you are once again in the cottage, waiting for the next people who need your help. As I turn around and pass back over the threshold, I mutter to myself, well, that prophecy better not come true or he's going to have a hard time getting that thing off. (laughs) 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 Um, Incredible. Uh, You uh, walk back in. Um, The morning chores are as easy and comforting as a thread-worn piece of clothing. You've been in this house and done these chores so many times. And as lunchtime comes around, um, the meals get smaller and smaller with each day because she has a harder time eating. Um, But... With time passing, you walk upstairs uh, and describe to me what you are bringing to Grandmother Wren in her bed. There's a little tray. On the tray is a little blue bowl of druk rice porridge, just the way that she used to make it for me. And on the druk, there is, optimistically perhaps, an egg runny, the way she likes it, bright and yellow, and some chives, a little bit of the shiso leaves from the garden. Grandmother Wren's bedroom, which she has been in for the past eight days. This is the longest she's gone without coming downstairs. Um, Her bedroom is like the inside of a beautiful old velvet jewelry box. It is 
very somehow both dim and bright. There are two windows that face the outside, but they are quite small with thick, rich gold and forest green curtains, like gilded and forest green velvet curtains and a diaphanous kind of white lace that the sunlight comes a little bit through, but they're very small. It's a bedroom. It's best to keep it a little bit dim so that one can be restful in here. The walls and ceiling are painted a deep splotchy green, a mixture of the bright, uh, the bright green of spring leaves and the deep green of a late summer all around. But of course, the walls and ceiling can hardly be seen for all of the riches here in many things of tinkling metal chimes and little diamond emblems, as well as dried herbs. There are by the window, uh, fresh flowers that of course, Ame, you mostly bring in. And you see the room, Grandmother Wren took rest very seriously. So within here you see there is no trace of work to be found. There is a broad and mighty closet filled with all manner of robes and shawls and scarves and warm blankets, filled with many pillows and cushions and things of that nature. And the room is very much dominated by the most comfortable bed you've ever seen. And there have been some nights that you've, you know, been able to sort of snuggle up in it from time to time. Uh, the bed has a broad, great wooden frame, deep red and gold comforters and quilts that have some little gold tassels on it. And at the head of the bed, maybe like 10 pillows, you know, a huge amount of pillows. Uh, the headboard is like some incredible thing from like a ship of myth and legend. It's like a carved woodland with a giant face of a green man. There's a the face of like a spirit of a wild one uh, of this uh, leafy bearded, twig haired, smiling spirit, some forest spirit in the headboard and boar's heads and stag heads kind of from a wave of leaves carved uh, rampant, almost like almost like a crest work, like a family crest along the headboard of the bed. And under the comforters, you know, the mattress just sinks deep down in and just held in warm blankets. Uh, her long uh, gray and white hair kind of in a mane around her with just the little lace cuffs of her sleeves as she sort of clutches the edge of the bed is a sleepy, rosy-cheeked grandmother Wren uh, who looks up buried in her pillows and goes, Oh, is it lunchtime already? Before I had stepped into the room, I had taken a deep breath, studying the tray. <sighs> this time going into the room... I have to steal myself these days to go in, and it's not because of the spooky man, as I called him, on the headboard that always terrified me when I was a child, but because I don't know how many times more I'll get to go in and hear her greeting. So I take my breath, and I bust in. Lunchtime! <gasps> oh, hooray! <gasps> Chuck and I think um, Henrietta 
played a very special egg for you. It's extra yolky and golden. Oh, lovely. I'm glad. Oh, and you see that as you put it in front of her, she looks at the sort of golden egg and smiles um, and uh, looks up at you with a look of just asking for a little bit of help to, um, you know, it's the last day or two. She's not really been like getting the fork herself. I uh, pick up the utensil from the tray and I poke the yolk so that it spills out in glorious yellow rivulets over the porridge. I stir it up a little, and I get a spoonful for her. I go, open up. Um, she opens her mouth. <laughs> ah, thank you. Very, very glad to have you here, Omi. Oh, I... I mean, where else would I be, Grandma Wren? I continue to spoon the porridge into she, her mouth. She gets two more bites, and then the fourth one comes up, and she shakes her head no. Just one more. One more. Come on. You can do it. All right. And takes another bite. And you can see it kind of stays in her mouth a little bit longer. And then she breathes out and... Leans back after that bite and smiles at you. When you first came here, you were a little bit too old to be spoon-fed, so... But I did do my share of wiping off the corners of your mouth. Good grief, you were like a little animal when you first got here. It is mm. more of more of lunch would end up on the sides of your cheeks than actually in your stomach. You know, Grandma Run, sometimes I was saving those pieces for later. <laughs> well, if that was the case, I wish you would have let me know. I would have put it under a, a, a little jar, kept it somewhere cold in the water for you. I like easy access to my snacks. <laughs> I suppose so. Did I, did I hear some guests downstairs? Yes, yes. Melia and Oren came by. They wanted uh, help conceiving a child. Oh, good, good, good. Were they, they, uh, did they have, um, they were having trouble or they just wanted uh, some, some assurance? Um, you know, they were... They've been, hmm, they're pretty eager to get things started, um, and, and seems like by now they should have gotten things started. So, you know, I just gave them a little assistance on their way. That makes sense. They're both, Aaron is a miller, and Melia grew up the daughter of farmers, and you need children around if you're going to have comfort in your old age, so I certainly would never blame anyone for their eagerness. That's that's for certain. Yeah. I can blame someone for their eagerness sometimes. Oh, that's a very knowing thing to say. <laughs> yes, cryptic, I know. Um, no, 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 don't explain anything cryptic to me. I, I know that there's nothing, there's no more important skill for a witch than muttering little cryptic things. <laughs> 
it's true. I feel like you spent most of my childhood doing that, and I still feel like I don't always have all the answers. I, I understand. Well, it's a. It's important that you know. It's important that you know as much as you can. So. I don't know what will happen when I'm gone. Sort of. The last one. What do you mean, the last one? Well, you know what I mean. I. Uh, give me an insight check. God. Ooh. It's a 23. Hot dice tray wow. over there. There's a hot dice yes. tray over there. Right now, in the beginning, while hey, it matters. When we need it. When we yes, need it. Yes. That yes, hot, hot good. exposition is needed. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, I think you're a little bit confused by that statement. Um, I think you're a little bit confused by that statement. Um, I'm going to ask a question now, actually, if I can. Yes. Um, Do you need the Wi-Fi password? Yeah, I need the Wi-Fi password. Yeah, okay, so it's... uh... Actually, we Um, we can share it. She, uh, you see see that uh, Grandmother Wren looks up at you in this moment of sort of, of like you're you're wondering if she's confused or if you're confused. She looks up at you and goes... Is uh, is Suvi still in the library? Uh, oh, uh, no, she's um, I think she's done studying for today. Oh, oh, good. Should make sure that she gets to eat too. She'll she'll, she'll study right through lunch if you let her. I know she's so scatterbrained, and I pick up the tray and and turn around to put it onto the table behind me, and and so that Grandma Ryan can't see my face. She looks up and says, "And do you?" To make sure she gets lunch too and set aside some some extra for our honored friend. Of course, of course. He uh he helped me with the with the porridge. He still reaches things that I'm too short to reach. He's a tall lad, that's yeah. for certain. It's <laughs> nice. I didn't I've I have never doubted my own competence for a moment until someone tall moved in and then I said, This is better. This is <laughs> This is better than it was before. <laughs> True. Yeah, this being independent de- definitely does have, have its perks, but the top shelf where the cookie jar is kept is, is just always there taunting you. That's <laughs> true. Um, I'm going to ask a question now, because in this long story together, uh, I feel more freedom to put some choices in the hands of my wonderful players. <laughs> Abria. Yeah. Do you think Suvi 
makes it to Grandmother Wren's cottage. <gasps> in time. No! Are you sure you don't need the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> Could you just take the Wi-Fi password? There is, there is nothing. Suvi has such a small world that the prospect of getting back to Grandmother Wren sends her flying towards past Toma, which she didn't care about. God, I want her to be there in time. Yes, she gets there in time. Oh. Oh. She landed in Silbury and had weird thoughts about tarrying and looking around and trying to remember the last time in this place and forge some new understanding and context over it. But she remembers why she's sort of been let out of the, the Citadel and every... She just keeps vacillating between wanting to take everything in and know it and understand it and un unpack the trauma of Silbury and then try to get to Toma and explore the place where she was never allowed to be seen. But everything pulls her towards the cottage. You barely see the familiar trees of a landscape that you knew so well. Silbury was jarring. The Silbury that you arrived in, teleporting into the middle of a plaza, mist rising from the ground, some surprised noises of people seeing a wizard of the Citadel suddenly appear in the middle of the town square. When you arrived there, you realize it was the exact same spot. And Silbury was illuminated by a clear nighttime sky with a beautiful crescent moon and stars. The crescent moon made that little glittering streak across the bay, which you couldn't even see the first time you were there because of the total cloud cover. And to see that town illuminated by moon and star rather than covered in the dead of night by clouds and only illuminated in moments by fire. It's very different. And the striking image of a restored mural with a beautiful family drinking tea. I turn away from it immediately. You turn away from the mural of the uh, you turn away from the mural of the Enlos and Daughters Tea Company. The beautiful handlebar mustachio, the wide-brimmed hat covered in flowers of the mother and their two adorable children. Out of sight, out of mind. You didn't get to see it the first time, and so you're not going to see it the second. No. That she has no idea how much time there is or she gets before something new happens. I don't think her thoughts are of Grandmother Wren's failing health, but just something new will call her home, so she wants to get to a place that for, even for a short time, she thought of as home. And uh, if you were watching her over time on the road, you would see 
a, a very nice horse frothing slightly, going from like a trot to a gallop as she like rides waves of panic of how much time she'll get. You ride and suddenly there it is. The first thing you see is the little white painted stones of the chimney and its little gray stone top, some smoke pouring out of it, and the thatched roof kind of appears and you get closer and you see the white walls and everything like that and there it is again. It shrunk while you were away. Yeah. Things that were tall <laughs> are now short and it looks like it settled in even more. It was already magical the last time you were here, but now vines are even vinier and, you know, moss got mossier and there's even more. It's, it looks like the house, if anything, is like tired. Like when you first came, the house was sitting and now the house is lying down. Oh, it's so small. This was my whole world while I waited. I immediately jump off the horse. And that first moment where you realize everything has been taken care of for you for the majority of your life. And Suvi stands and spins not knowing what to do with the horse for too long until a wave of panic hits that she has to make a choice and do something. She kind of just ties it to some little bit of the fence that Nicholas used to inhabit. And then she runs inside. Um, how close uh, do you get to the house when you dismount your horse? Oh. Respectful. Uh, she's probably 50 or 60 feet away. Okay. Uh, do you uh, do you get off uh, while you're still on the road and approach, or do you uh, ride it into the little like opening, like the area in front of the house? Uh, she would have enough like common sense and grace to dismount, like just kind of exiting the road, so she's not like rushing in what is like someone's kind of front yard. So she'll walk the horse in. Great. Uh, give me a let's roll a luck check. Ooh, just roll a d twenty for me. <laughs> Brennan's taking back what he said earlier. Four. <laughs> Cool. You want a respectful distance, so you get off the horse, uh, and your uh, foot touches the ground uh, right on the road before uh, you walk in. But it's been many, many years. You, uh... (laughs) Oh, crap. (laughs) Fairy tales! Uh, Um, uh, uh... You step on the you step on the road, uh, take down take the horse down to the fence, tie up the horse. You see the old stone bench where Steel sat you down many many years ago and told you that you had seen your parents for the last time. And you tie up the horse, and as you walk inside, I'll tell you what you don't see. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Um, you don't see um, the sun cast a shadow from the trees along the road and you close the door and the uh, old sign pointing to Silbury uh, falls off the tree and it takes two iron nails out with it. (gasps) 
Ame, as you're as you're upstairs, the moment just occurred like 20 seconds ago with that little moment of confusion of like her saying, I've told you everything. Um, and uh, you hear a noise downstairs in the kitchen. Someone's moving in the cottage. Oh, hold on a moment. Um, I flustered from this moment. I, I, I reached and pick up the tray uh, with the remnants of lunch and I head to the landing to head down the stairs. Uh, you get to the landing of the stairs and uh, uh, walking through the kitchen, you see a, a woman uh, that you you could never in a million years possibly mistake each other. Though you have both become adults, you instantly recognize the person standing in front of you. I drop the tray. <gasps> a bowl of porridge shatters and, and splats onto the floor. There's little rivulets of egg everywhere splashed up onto my boots. Suvi, you came back. Mommy, you dropped your tray. And I run to her and I throw my arms around her. Uh, Why are you the same height? (laughs) You're so tiny. <laughs> I, I reach up to uh, my my arms reach up to me maybe just just uh, her armpits. <laughs> oh my god! I didn't know you would be here. You're hi, Sophie. Hi, you you're you're here. I, I'm so glad. Hi. I I I pull back. She's been waiting for you. She she, I think she still thinks that you and Ursulon live here. She's. She's really not been doing very well. Oh, God. Uh, and, I, and I take you by the hand, and, and I pull you up the stairs. But I stop before we get to the door. Oh, I'm going to stop you the moment we pass the tray. Uh, there is just a, an anal retentive sense of, like, that's a mess. Hold on. <laughs> uh, and I reach out, and just with cantrips that are careless at this point, little streaks of teal magic shoot out to mend anything that's broken and to clean the mess of egg and porridge with prestidigitation, and it's all sort of just resettled on the tray. Uh, oh. Are you okay? Yeah. Thank you. And I and I pull you up towards the stairs and, and rapidly try to explain. Uh, I mean, you know she's a very powerful witch, but, you know, we're still humans, and and then... Our lives are a little longer, but... And she was so old, even when we were little. I know! She was like a million. Yeah. Well, steal yourself, I guess, for her to be a million and... 13 million, 14. <laughs> Is there anything... I I mean, I can go into town if there's anything I can uh, buy or get to ease... And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be... Re- you're... Witch now? Like a full one? Yeah, I'm I'm a witch. <laughs> That's so cool. You know magic? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do know. Uh, a flicker of, of No. No, you know what? You can you can inside check me if you want to. Yeah, I wanna <laughs> inside check her. Oh, go, go, go. I have a passive inside of thirteen. 
Brennan? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, 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 your girl's gotten good. 21. 11. Oh, how the turns of table. Oh, oh. and you can see a flicker of, of fear and uncertainty and something perhaps approaching wistfulness flicker across Ame's face for just a moment and then it's gone. I really do have to prepare you, though. It's going to be hard, and I know with everything that you've lost before that this might be tough, but just know that she's going to be so happy to see you. Okay? Okay. And there's a moment where Suvi sags a little bit. And there's something about, like, being in a place where you've been young and vulnerable that makes you want to sort of retreat into that. But you watch her fight it and regain that almost painful, like, posture. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, would you like to go in alone first? Or would you like... And I grab your hand. We hold hands. And I open the door. To let Suvi in. Uh, you see the sight before you. And sadly, the first look that greets you is one of confusion. Grammar Ren, it's... Well, it's Suvi. <gasps> Suvi. <laughs> she, she looks and says... Oh, I, 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 and a big tear forms the corner of her eye. She says, I, I thought, I thought, I thought I was looking at stone. Oh, oh, please come here, come here. Um, and she just holds up her, she can't, she just makes no attempt to sit. Yeah. But just holds her arms out and waits for you to bend over the bed. Yeah, Suvi will do the awkward bend and then... uh, kind of gives up on it pretty quickly and just hikes up that very like well-tailored outfit uh it just kind of crawls a little bit on the bed to give her like a good hug you see that she uh buries her it's like as always, it's the smell. It's like the familiar smell of Grandma Wren. And you can see that she buries her face in your neck and just holds you. And um, you feel this really long, relaxed exhalation. She goes, Oh, good, you're both here. Is Ursula coming? You know how our honored friends are, you know, he comes and goes as he pleases, but he, he sends his love, of course. Oh, I'm so very glad. I, it's a good reminder. The presence of a wild one is a gift, no matter how short or long. <laughs> uh, yeah, Stevie's going to do the kind of like turning her head, uh, because Grandmother Wren is so small now mm-hmm. uh, that she can kind of just look out over her white hair and just give uh, Ame a look of just, do you, do you still see him? Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. 
and see if you will turn back and just take another big sniff of that scent. And you, uh, Ame, you can see like Suvi's hands working again, tapping, committing this to memory. I um, bustle around the bedclothes, tucking, tucking it in and, you know, smoothing the bed covers. And What are you doing? Be here also. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Be yeah. here. Um, you see, Grandmother Ren looks up and says, Oh, my, my house was never so full as that summer. Oh. But, uh, oh, me. Yes. I, you see, she looks up at Suvi and says, I'm so glad you are here, my, my granddaughter. Oh. And she <laughs> uh, touches your face and says, um, Suvi, it is good you are here. Ame, I have prepared you with the things I think you should tell Suvi, but you must know that you should ask Suvi's permission because there are some secrets that are going to be hard, I think, for her to hear. Ame. You don't know what Grandmother Wren is talking about. What? Uh, Grandma Wren, you said that you would, you know, do a, a little investigating to see if, if some of the things that you thought were true are still true, and the, the people and that I might still trust and the things, but you never gave those names to me or, or, or that information. Her eyes go wide. Yes, I did, Ami. No, no. What? I... I did. I did. I told you. And I have... I have been telling you for... Uh, both of you make, um... Perception checks. What? <laughs> for what? Fourteen. Spreaded by passive right, perception my, is 18. Okay. My <laughs> passive perception is 21, but I rolled a 23. Let's go. That's, I, that, that's, that's so many. As Grandmother <laughs> Wren's eyes go wide, um, a little, just a faintest, faintest bit, but you see a little bit of a light gray smoke come out of the corner of her mouth. <gasps> no. I didn't see it. Uh, that oh. out. <laughs> um, she says, I did tell you. <gasps> Grimmer! Oh, it's, it's, it's like the curse. It's like the curse. That, do you remember that summer when she came back with the arm? And yes. Uh, you see what you understand to be a, a portion of a curse. And the thought, uh, you know that curses affect the mind and memory. And in a moment, suddenly, Grandmother Wren's confusion, you wonder... How much of this confusion has been the confusion of someone who is preparing to say goodbye, and you realize that some of this confusion is not of this world. She looks at you and says, Ami, you're seeing something. I need you to tell me what it is you're seeing. A little bit of smoke out of the corner of your mouth. I believe it to be a curse. All right. All right. We need to think and act carefully. And you see her body shudders a little bit. She says... Someone's managed to put a curse on me. I have memory of telling you many times of who it was you could trust. And I think something has moved here in this place and on this time. 
Suvi, give me a uh, perception roll with disadvantage. Yep. 13. Where are you looking in this moment? Uh, immediately looking out to the hall to see... I want to get back to the attic to grab another sensor. Okay. I've turned and looked away. Um, the sun is lower in the sky than it should be. Um, it has it has become later in the day than when you arrived here. What? What's happening? What she looks what's happening here. I need you. It's all right. I grip her hand. Girls, come close. All right. I'm going. Um, I am. Oh, and smoke comes out of her mouth and says, "Not that." All right. I am. Oh. Smoke comes out. She says, mm, clever, clever, clever. <laughs> oh, my All God. right. There were more like me. And you see she gets strong for a moment. And I am the last. She grips your hand on me and says, Suvi, witness this. What? You my granddaughter on me. This house is your house! No, 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 no! It is yours. What is mine, I will to you. You can't! I guarded the heart of this world, and there will be a witch of the world's heart after me. The moment this happens, I cast an identify on the house. Um... The house is holding something incredibly important. Um, Grandma Wren has been sitting on a source of power uh, that rivals anything you have ever seen in the Citadel. Which, if any, of the talismans you carry are involved in the casting of that spell? Suvi mentally reaches towards the her mother's pendant, which she keeps by her heart, stones amulet and the little sensor that hangs from the back of her hair that's been burning a version of the resin that was a gift from Ame. But she realizes now after smelling uh, Grandmother Wren that she had changed over time to include the smell of Grandmother Wren in it. So she's been carrying that with her for 10 years and just realized now. Oh, um, you also carried a lot of stuff into the home. And I'm wondering what, yeah. if any of that got like left downstairs or any of it that's with you, just in terms of like where your, your, um, the, the instruments of your power are within the house at this moment. Yeah. I think she would have put the staff down stupidly cause she couldn't carry it all, but she still has like the arm full of the cases and scrolls Okay, and the book. So you go to your mother's pendant as you cast Identify. Uh, there is something deep and profound and powerful within this house. Ami, we've been robbed, and that's all right. We have them exactly where we want them, because they have trifled with us. Now listen to me, this house is your house. You are my granddaughter. I do not know how many more witches of our kind are left in the world, but I know that if you are all that is left, the strength of your heart is enough to carry the world. And know this, and she looks to Suvi, and her eyes well up with tears. Even when I am gone, you are not alone. I am leaving. Find Taro. Find Taro. 
each of you can see out the window. The sun has fully set, and there is a little bit of purple. Something... What th- is happening? Um, uh, give me an arcana check. Uh, 19. Um, uh, you understand enough about temporal fields, about the nature of time. You know that magic associated with the spirits and anything to do with the world of spirits. You remember what happened to Ursulon. You know that when the spirit world draws near, that time can flow differently. You don't think this is anything imperial. If the imperial, if the Wizards of the Citadel had this kind of control over the passage of time reliably, but you know that time moves more slowly in the house than it does outside, because that is why the sun is setting faster. Um, So uh, great magic is unfolding in front of you. Um, As it does so, both of you look out and see Taro on top of the garden shed um, turn and begin to go from being mottled green and yellow and red uh, to becoming pearly white and translucent. I throw up in the window. Taro, get your ass feathers in here! (gasps) And a pearly ghostly rooster flies inside. Grandmother Wren's familiar, her rooster familiar rushes to her side, and you see Taro stands at the corner of a bedpost, the one facing towards the setting sun, and looks down at Grandmother Wren, whose breath has become ragged. uh, You see Grandmother Wren can no longer speak as she concentrates on this magic, but she smiles and looks at Taro. Um, smoke billows from her mouth. She has not fought off this curse, but she looks and smiles, a clever smile. Taro speaks. Granddaughters of Wren, the curse is powerful. The secrets that Wren shared still live. You have been cursed too. In that perception check that you rolled a 13 on before, you see a little bit of smoke from Ame's mouth. For all her sight, Grandmother Wren cannot see where the secrets are being kept. But there is a key. A key to find where they are being kept and a key to cut them free when found. There is a source with the power to disenchant and scry. She has kept it many long years, and thankfully it is it is a mere stone's throw away up in the attic. In the bathtub up above, she knows that you both played with it as children. There is a suit of armor. Ask the suit to hand you Wavebreaker, the sword up above. It had a cross hilt styled in waves. And a pommel with a fist with too, too many, many fingers. fingers? Exactly. Run upstairs and fetch it now. Mm. You may still have time oh. to find it. Oh. If you gave it to Ursulon. What? To Ursulon, the wild one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. Oh, no. And you see, Grandmother Wren looks and winces her eyes in a moment of, she should have known. <gasps> and you see, for all of the tensity of this moment, for, uh, for all of the tension of this moment, for all these wide things, this wise old witch probably had too many powerful artifacts of great importance in her ancient cottage (laughs) to keep track of and for all of the wonder of the world you see her look and go 
just like this to happen. No, these things do unfold this way, don't they? Taro goes, Ursulon. Ursulon has the sword. Find him. Find the wild one, wherever in the world he may be, and retrieve the sword from him. It will help you find whatever is keeping these secrets and perhaps whoever took them. We will. Oh, we'll fix it. I'm sorry. Tara looks and says, there's nothing to be sorry for. In all the wide comings and goings of the world, perhaps there is some cause for a spirit to have been given the sword that could cut these things free. It is, it is not always for us to know why the workings of the spirit world have come upon us in this way. And you see here that Grandmother Ren goes <coughs> and coughs and a pure lump of like black bile comes up. No. Um, Taro diminishes a little bit and looks out. Grandmother Ren holds her hands out to the both of you. I, I take her hand. This is your house when I am gone. But I ask Ami, will you honor the invitations I extended once the house is yours? Always. I love you both. And she winks at you and squeezes your hand. I love you so much, Grandma Ren. Please tell me. She, holding both of your hands, moves those hands together so that you are holding each other's hand. The ones who leave Suvi. They can always come back. In our hearts, they can always come back. I'm so glad you did. And her eyes close for a final time. Taro looks down. Tears roll down his little beak fade into starlight and twinkle away before they touch the bedclothes. As he begins to fade, the starlight outside is almost carrying little pieces of him away into the nighttime sky, and he looks as though those streams of light are beckoning him. Piece by piece, constellations of him are borne away into the nighttime sky. You will find Ursulon and the sword. I know it. And Tara fades away. Suvi, you think of Ursulon, of the wild boy you found in the forest so long ago, and you look out of the window, wondering where in all the wild woods of the world your dear beloved Ursulon might be. You don't see Ursulon. You see a figure walking up the road. <laughs>